So we're, we're going to be talking about uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So if you want to get your Bible out and open there, we'll be spending our evening there. Uh, let's just pray before I start. Uh, Lord, uh, again, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your goodness to us. pray that you would be with me as I teach, uh, that you would help me speak the truth. And uh, this would be edifying to everyone here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11 reads, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Some believers, it seems, are particularly gifted when it comes to prayer, wouldn't you say? And we have some historical examples of this. Uh, One that comes to mind is Jesus, of course. But others as well. Uh, William Carey uh, was the father of modern missions. However, it was his sister who would spend hours every day praying for his ministry. And no doubt she was a huge part of the success of his ministry. She was bedridden, so she couldn't do much, but she did a lot in her prayers for her brother. If you've ever heard George Mueller or seen any of his books, I think every book he wrote is about prayer somehow, um, but he was, he was devoted to prayer, extraordinary, extraordinarily gifted in that area. And I think... Probably most of us would admit we're not extraordinarily gifted in the area of prayer. I know I, I, there's plenty of room for me to grow in that area. Uh, but we ought not use this as an excuse for why we don't pray. We, we went over several reasons why, or excuses why maybe we don't pray as much as we ought to last week. And just saying that it's not really our gifting isn't a good excuse. Uh, we know that we need to do better. We know that uh, the Lord calls us to be a people who pray continually. And I think most of us hopefully long to be better prayers. We, we wish that we could pray with more fervor. We wish we were more zealous about prayer. But the truth is our knowledge of God is not as deep as it should be. And so that hinders us. Uh, and, uh, and yet we, we still long to learn how to pray. And I think this passage can help us overcome some of these excuses and, and maybe encourage us to pray more diligently. So the first thing I want, I'll point out is that Paul prays for us to know the things that are excellent, to approve the things that are excellent. Uh, he wants us to grow so that we experience these things, so that we get a deeper knowledge of God, who he is, uh, how excellent he is, and and the things that go along with who he is. And this really leaves us with no room. If we take Paul's prayer for us seriously, it doesn't leave room for us to remain mediocre or satisfied with ourselves or just content with our own lame excuses for why we don't pray. So let's look at what the excellent things are that he talks about in this passage. There's, there's three little clues that he gives us 
Uh, the first one is Paul assumes that if they're going to approve of the excellent things, that their love is going to first abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So why does Paul pray for their love to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight or, or all discernment, as some translations put it? What does this actually mean? Well, love that abounds more and more sounds really nice, uh, and it might be plain enough to understand that, but what about this love that abounds in knowledge and depth of insight? I remember uh, my first pastor growing up, he pointed out that... Uh, the passage doesn't say that your love may abound more and more in emotion. It's knowledge. And it's knowledge of God and who he is and insight about who God is and wisdom. But consider what the opposite of this is. It's not a love that abounds in ignorance and insensitivity. Right? It's not uh, a love that abounds in sentimentality and, uh, and nostalgia. Right? It's a love that abounds in a knowledge of God and an insight into who he is. It's not a cheap emotional feeling that he's, he's praying for. It's a discriminating and, const- and constrained... Sorry. It's a love that is discriminating and discrained, dis- constrained by knowledge and depth of insight, knowledge of God and his word. Without these constraints, love becomes cheap and weakened and I think in our day and age we see that love the word love is kind of meaningless in the world it doesn't actually carry much weight with it anymore when our love is constrained and informed by the Bible it doesn't become weak like a love that is just some mushy emotional feeling it actually remains pure it remains valuable It's active. It's a good thing. Love that lacks knowledge, on the other hand, can make someone arrogant and easily devolve into something that's not love at all. The point is that Christians must abound more and more in love in order to approve, like it says, the things that are excellent, and that without this love, we will not be able to approve those things that are excellent. So, essentially, if a a person's heart has not been changed, they will not approve of the things that are excellent. Secondly, the phrase, what is excellent, gives us another clue into what Paul's getting at here. There are a lot of decisions in life that are not a question between what is right and what is wrong. In some ways, it's, it's more of a matter of what is good, what is better, and what is best. And there's discernment needed in this in order to approve the things that are the best, Right? In other words, Paul prays that we would, by abounding in love, be able to discern what is most vital, what is most important. The third and final clue is that, uh, that helps us understand what's going on here is the content of the excellent things with, that Paul prays for. Paul prays that they will grow in Christ and that he who began a work, a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Paul's not content that their faith stands still, but that they grow continually in in their faith until finally at the last day they're perfected. Now, this does not diminish our need to be resolved to grow. Paul exhorts later in this book and through his own personal example, uh, in in chapter 3, he says, 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then this is where he gives his personal example. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. So when we look at these three, these three clues that Paul gives us, we see that this is really uh, all the elements characteristic of maturing Christian discipleship. That's what he's praying for. More experience of the power of the resurrection in our own lives. Uh, greater participation in Christ's sufferings. A growing knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. A growing love for him and for the people who are around us. And then an anticipation of the day when Christ will return. In short, it's not merely, the prayer is not just to get us to know between right and wrong and just to make us good Christians. It's turning the whole person into a whole Christian. The whole heart is completely changed. The whole mind is completely changed so that we are profoundly Christian people in the way we think about everything. That's what Paul's prayer uh, is aimed at. So, if that's the aim, then we need to know, well, what does this actually look like? What does it look like when our love abounds still more and more in knowledge and all discernment? What does it look like when we approve the things that are excellent, that we are sincere and without offense? When we're looking forward to Christ coming back, when we're filled with the fruit of righteousness, what does that actually look like? Well, there's a whole host of questions we can ask ourselves. Like, how do you spend your time? How many hours a week do you spend just selfishly doing your own stuff? How much time do you spend with your children, teaching them about the Lord, sharing the gospel with them? How much time do you spend with your spouse, helping them grow in their faith? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? How much time do you spend watching TV or with the screen in front of your face, or on social media. Uh, what have you read in the last six months? Have you read any really good commentaries or Christian books? Um, what kind of magazines, what kind of fiction books do you read? Uh, if, you're, if you're in business like I am, do you spend more time reading business books? Is that what you really want to read? Uh, are you reading things that are really excellent, that are actually edifying? Even if they are not Christian books, per se, are they still edifying? How are the relationships in your family? How's, how's the relationship with, with your spouse and with each of your kids? Do you make time for prayer? We talked about that last week. How do you spend your money? Do you, do you give a, if uh, you decided, okay, I'm going to give this amount, let's just say 10%, I'm going to give 10%, and then you just feel like I'm not obligated anymore to, do, to be generous with the rest of my funds. I can just take that all for myself. It's all mine because I gave my 10%, and that's good enough. Or do you feel like, okay, I gave my 10%, but where else can I give? 
maybe it's not even money, but maybe where can I give of my time, of my energy, of my knowledge? How can I help the other people around me? Do you give grudgingly 10%? Maybe you tithe, but you're not real happy about it. Do you love giving beyond a certain amount because you see that that is an excellent thing to do? That investing in the people around you is worth your time and effort because they're people who are made in the image of God. Do you find as you get older that you are growing more compassionate towards the people around you or do you find you're getting more and more cynical? Is your Bible reading causing you to grow in knowledge and depth of insight? Is it causing you to be more loving, to be more joyful, to have peace with God? Or is it just a chore? Have you come to the point that you, where you've accepted that sometimes you just do things that are painful, you do things that cause you to deny yourself simply because that's what you should do as a Christian and you actually enjoy doing it? Because that's what the Lord calls us to do. And I could go on, but I won't. Because the point isn't really to generate a lot of guilt in us, although I may have done that. But it's really to help us see there's, there's all these choices before us every day about how we're going to spend our time, how we're going to spend our money, what we're going to invest in, what we're going to do. And we fail at them all. But if we are growing in love, and our love is abounding more and more in knowledge and discernment and depth of insight, we're going to be making the right choices more often. We're going to be growing more and more so that, you know, if we, if we are giving of our money grudgingly, that changes over time because we see that this is a good thing, that the Lord wants us to love each other by being generous with our time and with our tithes. We will desire to do these things from our heart and not simply because we should obey the law. Now, someone might say, well, yeah, but God wants us to obey the law, doesn't he? And yes, he does. He's, he's holy and he desires us to be holy. In fact, he says that we ought to be perfect. That's just as he is perfect. However, the point is, one of the points that I want to make here is that the law does not necessarily tell us every single decision that we ought to make. It doesn't give us the answer to every single decision. For instance, the use of our time. Everyone has 24 hours in a day. The way I use my time is going to be different than the way Jerry uses his time, is going to be different than the way Amy uses her time, and different the way Scott uses his time. Because we're different people, we're in different life situations, and what's wise for me may not be wise for someone else. And that's part of this discernment that we need. We need to study God's word and understand his will for us so that in our own life situations we can make decisions that are wise and pleasing to God. An example I thought of, not in the book, is uh, when we talk about the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. And... Uh, in uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermons, which are really good, helpful, 
uh, one of the things that he says is that you shouldn't take a nap on the Lord's Day because it's not a day for laziness. And uh, I, I would say I disagree with that. I wouldn't actually make that prescription for anyone. Now, if someone decided, I don't need a nap on the Lord's Day, that's totally fine. But if someone else decided, yeah, I, I need a nap, I need to rest, that's a good use of the Lord's Day for me. That's kind of one of these examples I'm thinking of. It may be a very wise thing. In fact, it may be the healthiest thing you can do for your spiritual life to go take a nap, right? And another person may not need a nap. Someone may be able to function just just fine with six hours of sleep a night, whereas another person just hates humanity if they don't get eight hours of sleep. (laughs) So these are the kinds of things that that we need wisdom from the Lord. We, We need to grow in love so that we discern these things with the Bible in view, with, with the wisdom of the Lord in hand. Any, any uh, questions so far? All right. So we're going to look at uh, the, the, uh, toward the end of this prayer when Paul says that you be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. So Paul's prayer is not just for right now, for today. It's for today and tomorrow and the next day until the day of Christ, when Christ returns. Uh, Everything Paul's prayed for in this passage is with just that in mind, the appearance of Christ. Now note that he does not appeal to the day of Christ in order to make you fearful or as some kind of veiled threat. Veiled threat. He doesn't say you better start doing good because Jesus is coming back. Right? He actually uses this as a way, something for us to look forward to, something that we should be excited about and actually looking forward to, something that compels us in a good way to love the Lord more and to give all of ourselves to him. We need to live with the day of Christ in view, knowing that we are moving toward that and looking forward to that and compelled by that. Christians who live with the day of Christ in mind will be fruitful Christians. And so in this way, we are people who our citizenship is in heaven, and yet we are still here on earth looking forward to the day when Christ returns. We are an outpost of heaven on earth. This church and every church that preaches the the gospel is a microcosm of the new heaven and the new earth. We sin, we fail, we do things we shouldn't do, we have all kinds of problems with us, but by God's grace, we are not what we used to be. Right? So we are a community of people who are missionaries. We are here to make disciples of each other and of the world around us. And so we ought to see ourselves in that way. And this is what Paul is preaching us, uh, teaching us to do in this prayer, is to not just be a people who live in the here and now, but growing in love, abounding in love, and looking forward to the day when Christ returns. And so what Paul is praying for here, really, is that we be revived. He's praying for a revival among us. What 
we will be eventually is what Paul wants us to be right now. Remember, the Lord tells us, be holy as I am holy. Right? He wants us to be perfect. And so we ought to be praying for that, that we would be holy as the Lord is holy. Now, we are pardoned sinners, and we do fail at times, but that is the goal, is that we be holy as the Lord is holy. So what happens if we, if we start praying for revival, if we take this seriously, and we actually start praying for revival fervently, and that revival comes, what is that going to look like? How are things going to change? How are relationships going to, diff, going to change? What does that mean for us personally? Well, there's a few things that we can look at in history. First thing is that resentments dissolve. We become people who are forgiving of each other. Self-promotion ceases and becomes a noxious thing. We, we become humble people because we see how horrid we are in our hearts and how gracious the Lord is to revive us. People become more concerned about their salvation and about living holy lives. If you've ever read about the, the revivals, that, uh, Jonathan Edwards' writings about the revivals, that's one of the things that he talks about is people coming to him urgently asking him, how do I be saved? How do I live a holy life? You know, what do I need to do? People embrace self-denial. People stop living for themselves and they start thinking about other people. People stop worrying about things that don't actually matter because they're looking forward to the reality of heaven and eternity and the things that are more important. Worship changes from being a thing you do on Sunday morning and Wednesday evening to something that you do all the time. It becomes as natural as breathing. Gimmicks and entertainment fade away. I think if there was a if if there was real revival, a lot of churches would have to make massive changes to the way they do things in this country. And then evangelism becomes much more important and much more fruitful. People actually become very concerned about the souls of their neighbors, the souls of their friends, the souls of, of their loved ones. So Paul's prayer really is a prayer for revival among us. He's not simply exhorting us to try harder or to do better. He's praying that we will just be totally revived by the Lord and live fully for God. And that means we strive, doesn't it? It means we strive. We pray wholeheartedly that the Lord would revive us. And we pray that God would bring that fruit into our lives. So, one of the things that uh, our author points out is that this pursuit of the good things, the excellent things, may actually become an idol in our lives. Uh, perfectionism is not a virtue. It's not something that is necessarily commendable, and it manifests itself in many different ways. Uh, parents who have too high expectations of their kids, uh, a, 
a husband who demands that the toothpaste be rolled from the bottom up, manifests itself in, in odd ways. Uh, but it also invades the church. People who are obsessed with the preacher saying everything just exactly right. Right? People obsessed with things being done just the way that they want them to be done. And in no different way. Uh, the, our author knew a preacher who came to him and complained. He said, I, I'm not going to make it past 50 years old because everything I do has to be perfect. I'm not ready to preach until it's 100% ready to go. And through the course of time, he eventually told him, just give 80%. Because really what this preacher was doing is he was not pursuing excellent things. He was making an idol out of excellence. And that's really, I think, what perfectionists do, is they make an idol out of excellence. Because, really because they want other people to see how good they are, that they do everything 100% all the time. And we do this. You know, a wife who, when guests are coming over, the house has to look like no one lives there, right? Or a Christian businessman who makes an idol out of success. Or a student who's devastated if they get an A-, a minus, and their GPA, their perfect GPA, is, is ruined. So as we think about, you know, abounding in love and approving these things that are excellent, we ought to be cautioned in some way that the pursuit of excellence ought to be a biblical thing, pursuing knowing the Lord and knowing Him deeper, serving Him more diligently, and not just excellence for the sake of looking good to other people. And the test of this is really what are our motives? Are we pursuing excellence because uh, we want other people to admire us? Are we pursuing excellence because everyone else out there isn't good enough for us? Or do we pursue excellence and then judge other people because they're not as good as we are? If we're driven by that kind of attitude, it's not going to end well. We're just going to become people who, are, who judge others and uh, just believe that nobody else lives up to our wonderful high standards. And this prayer does not allow that to happen. Right? This, this prayer that Paul puts before us means that we deny ourselves. It means that we do not seek our own interests. It means we seek the interests of other people first. It means we're concerned with the good of our fellow believers. It means that we're first and foremost concerned with the glory of God and not with what we want. Any questions? I am ending early tonight. So as, as let's, let's read uh, Philippians 1, 9 through 11 again one last time before we wrap it up. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your own excellence, your glory, uh, for your mercy to us. We pray that uh, you would use uh, your word in our hearts to revive us, to change us into people who are whole, 
holy revived, people who are completely sold out for you, uh, people who are dedicated to uh, the cause of Christ, the cause of the gospel, and to each other. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.